Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Friends, as we continue our Walks of Faith sermon series, we turn this morning to the book of Daniel. I wonder, when was the last time you read Daniel? Just curious. Anybody? Okay, that's fine. You're not alone. Don't worry. Friends, no other God is what some would see as foundational to the chapter we will read and to the entire book of Daniel. Others might say that the book of Daniel often gets watered down to oversimplified, heroic examples of faith that we are to emulate. As you will hear in chapter 3 this morning, Nebuchadnezzar intensifies his tyrannical demands and destructive powers by upping the stakes with a fiery furnace. From a statue in a horrifying dream in the prior chapter, we move to a statue of the king's own making and his command that everyone worship his statue, directly challenging the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are threatened with death if they do not abide. While their faithfulness to God is exemplary, perhaps this is not the final point of this chapter. What about God's faithfulness to them? What about the power of their God? There is perhaps more to the story, more for us to consider here than a transactional relationship with God or a how-to survival guide for tough times. So let us turn and hear a reading from the prophet Daniel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 25 from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and entire musical ensemble, you should fall down and worship the statue that I have made. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his armies to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, 
their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was there not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king, true. He replied, but I see four men unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. days when what you say and what is actually heard are two different things. You walk into a barber shop and you ask for a little trim off the top and you come out looking like The Rock or Dr. Eel, right? And you wonder, was I not clear enough? A man came into my office not long ago to tell me that he was worshiping at another church now and that he wouldn't, I wouldn't be seeing him on Sunday and I, I was sad about that. I said, just out of curiosity, what church are you attending? And he said, the Episcopal Church. And I said, why the Episcopal Church? And he said, because I like their lethargy better. 
I said, you mean theology, right? And he said, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> some things just get lost in translation. True story, I was having breakfast with a friend, and uh, he told the server very specifically, I have a gluten allergy, please inform the chef, I can't have any gluten at all, and uh, I'd like a, a gluten-free omelet. And so she said, the server said, I got it, uh, one gluten-free omelet coming up. And would you like uh, the muffin or the sourdough toast with that? <laughs> True story. Sometimes we can't be clear enough. I want to say a word this morning and I want you to think about this word as being the most ambiguous and perhaps most dangerous word in the English language. Just speaking this word causes a lot of misunderstanding and even misery. It is a source of a great deal of our, many of our problems in our personal lives in our relationships and careers, maybe, our public lives, even our faith. We rarely like to hear this word, but we rarely hesitate to use it when it's convenient. What word am I talking about? The word is maybe. Maybe. If there's one word that trips us up or keeps us stuck, it's the word maybe. Have you ever been faced with a yes or no sort of moment only to feel that paralyzing power of maybe. Maybe is the enemy of momentum. Think about this. You get down on your knee and you ask the love of your life, will you marry me? And if his or her uh, first response is the word maybe, well, you probably have a problem. If you ask your boss, uh, are you satisfied with my job performance? And if she says maybe, you probably have a problem. If you ask your date if you got something stuck in your teeth and he says maybe, you got a problem. We reach out for the maybe whenever we want to buy ourselves more time or abdicate our responsibility or avoid the discomfort of speaking the truth or to evade the decisive yes or no that's required of us in some moment. And every non-committal maybe leads to delay. It often leads to straddling, to drifting, even duplicity. When what the world most often demands of us is decisiveness and intentionality and especially wholeheartedness, right? Maybe is often the opposite of faithfulness. You and I, we expect that people would say what they mean to say and they'll do what they mean to do, right? And that's why Jesus taught his followers once in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, let your yes be yes and let your no be no and anything more comes, he said, from the evil one. Even Jesus knew there are times when we can no longer straddle and we must utter a simple yes or no. And why is this hard? It's hard because sometimes we say yes to one thing and that necessarily implies a no to something else. And sometimes our no to something necessarily implies a, a deeper commitment to something of greater value that will require a deeper investment. And so much of our lives in the modern world are lived in the land of maybe, where we don't have to take a stand on anything, where we never have to be wholehearted in our commitments to others, to ourselves to some calling or even to God. 
But what happens when we make the brave move to leave the land of maybe and dare to utter a clear yes or no? Our story today, as we continue our Walks of Faith series, captures, us, it captures for us the, the experience of these three characters, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the book of Daniel. These three characters who say no to a megalomaniac king in order to say yes to God. Now, it's important here to note that the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three characters are fictional. They're not real. They do not belong to actual recorded history, nor is the book of Daniel itself intended to be understood or read as a literal book of history. Daniel is this remarkably complex piece of writing. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a big word, but what it means really is there's this prophecy for a moment in time, a moment in history, and it is combined with a vision from one writer about um, how this cosmic struggle that's taking place in that moment of time will ultimately be resolved. That's it. That's what apocalyptic literature points us to, a prophecy and a vision for how to resolve a cosmic struggle in a moment in time. Daniel functions a lot like the book of Revelation in the New Testament. The book of Revelation, in fact, is based somewhat on the book of Daniel, both apocalyptic literature. Through these vivid visions and cryptic symbolism, both of these books are written, hear this please, they're written as protest literature from the religious underground of 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 a particular community. And this literature is intended to inspire God's people to resist corrupt leaders and oppressive systems that are seeking to dominate and conquer them. If you've ever struggled with the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, if you've ever wondered about all this intricate symbolism and weird characters and cryptic references to past and future events, and if you wondered if we're supposed to all take these things literally, I want to remind you this, that for the original audiences that read the book of Daniel and Revelation in their own particular turbulent context, these books were not understood to be literal depictions or predictive descriptions of how the future would unfold. I want you to think about this as more like a narrative sermon, only they're written in very graphic, if you will, Marvel comic type form. Big, high definition, everything is big and the characters are, are, are massive in our minds and they're fighting, this, they're fighting these forces that are up against them in the world. And what these two books, Daniel and Revelation, how they were interpreted was was through the lens of this one overarching sweeping message. And this message was, do not give up, keep the faith, God is with you in your struggle, and God will redeem you on account of your faithfulness. Today we want to ask the question, why is Daniel and Revelation Why are these books still speaking to us today? It's not because they point to some future cosmic conclusion of the universe that 
and how all these pieces are literally going to fit together. It's because these books give us this timeless call to action. They give us this promise, this divine promise that says, in whatever turbulent times you are in, do not give up. Be faithful. God is with you in your struggle and you will be redeemed. That's it. And what makes Daniel in particular so difficult for us to understand is that it's written in a setting. That is, the, its historical setting for the book is the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile of the Jews. That happened in the years 586 to 538 BCE, that is, before the Common Era, before Christ. But the book of Daniel itself was written 400 years after that. And so the writer is essentially taking us, as a present-day audience, taking us back 400 years ago in time when the Jews were conquered by the Babylonians. And they were taken into exile. They were subjugated by pagan gods, rulers, off in a foreign land. And in exile... In exile, these captive Jews, they had no temple, they had no clergy, they had no hymn books, they had no harps or lyres to play their worship songs, and over time, they struggled to find their voice with God. They lost their faith, they, many of them gave up on God, surrounded by all these pagan gods. Okay, so now Daniel is writing 400 years after that experience with the Jews, And he's writing to another catastrophic experience for the Jews. And that is the the Greek colonization of Israel. The Jews, at the time of Daniel's writing, are living under an oppressive regime. And these Greek overlords are imposing their pagan religion on these monotheistic Jews. And now the Jews are faced with this very difficult choice. Will I cooperate with the king and bow my knee to the gods or will I hold fast keep the faith the consequences of course of of not bowing to those gods would be to lose your property maybe to lose your family maybe to lose your life as you can imagine this is an awful no win demoralizing choice can you imagine how you might choose in your own life Those Jews had at least three choices. They could could accept the king's religion. They could bow to the king's gods. And as you can imagine, in the end, would lose something vital to their soul. Or they could fake their fidelity to God and bow their knee and pretending to worship that God while secretly holding on to their own personal faith. Be difficult. Or finally, they could organize a rebellion and go up against the king and fight with valor and glory and hope for the best which would likely mean death so those are the three options and Daniel then writes to these Jews who are living in that context and he says there are three characters back in the old days who didn't choose any of these options Daniel puts it this way hey our current political predicament with these Greek colonizers Uh, reminds me of a story he says back 
from the days of the Babylonian exile, 400 years ago, he says, about these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who refused to bow down and worship the golden statue of the king. And he goes on, he says, they're dragged before the king who says to them, is it true that you will not serve my gods or worship my golden statues? I will give you one last chance. Get on your knees, worship my statues, or say hello to my little fiery furnace friend, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to King Nebuchadnezzar, your threat means nothing to us. Go ahead, throw us in the fire, because the God we serve can rescue us from the flames of your furnace, or anything else you might try to cook up, O king. But they say, even if God doesn't rescue us, we'll never worship your gods. According to Daniel's made-up story here, not only is the king happy to oblige, but he actually cranks up the temperature on that furnace to seven times its normal heat. I'm pretty sure this is where we got the proverbial cliche, turn up the heat, right? So can we just call them Rack Shack and Benny? Any VeggieTale fans here? Rack Shack and Benny are tossed into the furnace, but strangely, they're not consumed by the flames. Daniel says the fire doesn't do anything to them at all. Their, their hair isn't singed. Their clothes aren't air fried. They, they don't even smell like fire. And not only are all three of them still in the fire singing Kumbaya, but it turns out that there's now a fourth character that's joined them in the furnace. This guy wasn't there before. He is now. And what does the king say? That fourth one looks a lot like one of my gods. You see, this is Daniel's subversive, resistance, rebellious moment in the story. It's sarcasm. It's like he's saying, O king, you're so bad that not even your gods want to stick with you. They'd rather be in the furnace with these guys. They've jumped ship on you. They have joined the rebellion, the resistance movement. But the fact that they're not even burning up and that they've added now to their numbers, that's not even the best part of the story. The best part of the story, which we didn't read, is that the king has a change of heart. The king is actually converted to their cause. And in a scene later after this uh, particular story that we just heard, Daniel, in telling the story, uses the king to give the punchline. He says to the people, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the, obeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. That's the punchline. And the whole story ends when the king stands before the people and declares religious freedom for all the Jews in his empire. It's just a story that Daniel cooked up, if you will, for his people, living under the heel of Greek overlords. It didn't actually happen, but everyone who heard it knew what the point was. They understood that history never turns on the feeble hinges of our maybes. And that sometimes all it takes to change the world 
is our brave yes to the good. There are moments when our yes to God means a no to all those forces in the world that would claim power over us or that would stand in the way of God's purposes. And Daniel's story about these three characters, Rack, Shack, and Benny, who dare to stand up to the king, it reminds us that in the hands of God, even these little tiny yeses can become resounding, resounding messages of goodness in the world. Our seemingly inconsequential yes can turn the, his, the tide of history. You think about this, Rosa Parks didn't say no on a Montgomery bus in 1955. What she really said was yes to a much higher purpose. And she understood in that moment that there are moments in all of our lives when we have to leave the land of maybe and walk through the fire. August 8th, 1943, a man named Franz Jagerstatter sat in a, a, a Berlin prison cell. He was deep in prayer and quite at peace with God and himself. On the table in front of him was a single piece of paper, which was a promise to serve in the Nazi medical corps. And all Jagerstatter had to do was sign this document, and the Nazis would let him live. A simple choice. His wife and his three little daughters begged him to sign the document. His priest and bishop pleaded with him. Even his guards begged him to sign, but he didn't sign. And hours before his execution, he wrote a letter preserved by his wife. And in this letter, he says this. There have always been heroes and martyrs who gave their lives for Christ and their faith. And if we hope to reach our goal someday, then we too must become heroes of the faith. For as long as we fear others more than God, we will never make the grade. The important thing is to fear God rather than people. Jagerstadter died at the age of 37. Uh, his story, as you may know, was captured in a wonderful film a few years ago called A Hidden Life. Now, for most of us, saying yes to the good will have far less dramatic and life-altering consequences. But even our smallest yes will bear its impact in the world. And today, in the modern world, so many people are saying no. Only they don't use that word, no. They use hopeless phrases like, it is what it is. Or, there will always be problems in the world. Or, you can't fix everything. But they're saying no. Too many others are saying maybe, only instead of maybe, they're saying things like, someday I'll get around to it. Or, the timing isn't just right right now. Or, someone else will do it, surely. And this is why our yes, however small, to what is good, and right and just and worthy adds up over time and becomes so consequential. The late preacher Fred Craddock, he said that 
a lot of us think that giving our life to God is like taking a thousand dollar bill, laying it on the table and saying, here is my life, God. I'm giving it all to you. But for most of us, he said, God sent us right, sends us right back to the bank. And God has us cash in that thousand dollar bill for a bunch of quarters. And then we go through life putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there. Because he says, giving our life to Christ isn't always glorious and heroic. It's done in all these little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It is inevitable that people of faith like you and me will have to say yes. And our yes will be accompanied with some degree of suffering. It happens every day. We stand up in the face of injustice when everybody else is saying, sit down. Or we speak up prophetically when everyone else is saying, shh. Or we speak up for those whose voices have been silenced and become the voice of truth. These are all the various ways we say yes to God. And we discover that the world turns even on the slenderest of hinges. As the great philosopher Yoda once said, (laughs) do or do not, but do not try. I think that's what Jesus and Rack and Shaq and Benny were all saying. Be a yes or be a no but don't be a maybe. Takeaways for today, maybe is often the enemy of momentum. Sometimes all it takes to change the world is our brave yes to God and to the good. Do or do not, but do not try. Let's pray. Gracious God, we have received your word in spirit and in truth. And now, O God, may we leave this place not only as hearers of your word, but doers also. In the name and by the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.